four, weeks one through five, coming out hot. I opened the season four and one. Week one was huge and taught us a significant amount about how teams would fare this season. I was matched up against Kevin, my cross-division rival. I was not happy about this at the time. The cross-division rivalries made little sense to me. Nothing seemed particularly rivalrous about Kevin and I to this point. If I had a rival in the other division, it was Pete. Our battles on Clark Lane and Gin Rummy, Madden 04, and of course, fantasy football, seemed to dictate that Pete is my most meaningful opponent in the weaker assumption division. Kevin was a tough draw for two matches this year in a league where playoff spites often come down to the last week and tiebreakers. He had built what I considered the most talented team in the league to open the year, and it was more than a little discouraging that I would have to see him an extra time. He went into the week as an eight-point favorite based on projections. His team fared well, scoring 142, but I came out of the gate hot, knocking him off convincingly with a 156-point performance. It would be my first of nine wins against the weaker assumption division, and the first of three against Kevin. Moreover, my team appeared to be coming together nicely. Josh Allen got nine rushing attempts, Antonio Gibson had 23 touches, Austin Eckler scored on a goal line carry, something he was not predicted to do much of. Perhaps no player impressed more than Darren Waller with 10 catches on 19 targets. I also managed 38 points from my non-offensive players. The most exciting takeaway was the performance of my wide receiving court. I had waited until the middle rounds to take receivers, favoring a tight end and a quarterback in the top 12 picks. While Devontae Adams and Aaron Rodgers seemed sluggish and rusty to open the year, Antonio Brown provided 18 points, and my must-get guy, Corey Davis, posted a whopping 21 points with two touchdowns. I was thrilled. If I could get this kind of production out of my mid-round wide receivers and get Michael Thomas back week six, I would be a very difficult team to contend with as this was my least sturdy position group. Around the league opening week, there were some early and telling surprises. Brett lost, showing chinks already in the super team he had invested so much capital to assemble, and to Casey, of all people. Hoy struggled against an average showing by Ryan of 118 points, and while Kevin did suffer defeat, he managed an impressive point total that accurately predicted his ability to score all year. Looking back, though, the most telling game was between Joe and Gabe. While Joe got big games from keepers Kelsey, CMC, and 13 points from Sanders, his draft was showing weakness already. His wide receivers combined for 4.9 points between the three of them, including a fat old bagel from Brandon Ayuk. This position group made up his first, second, and eighth round picks. They would all go on to be season-long busts and would all be dropped from his team, leaving him to play the waiver wire for two of his three starting wide receivers. Gabe, on the other hand, exploded for 174 points and led the league in scoring by nearly 20. Every one of his offensive players scored over 11 points that week. Tom Brady, a preseason waiver claim, put up 27. TJ Hawkinson, a player he would later package trade for Travis Kelsey, dropped 17. His keepers held serve, but most impressively, his wide receivers dominated. Third-round pick Cooper Cup mustered 17 points and Debo... Debo Samuel racked up 23. This was easy to pass off as a fluke early on, but would come to be the foundation of what would be the top-scoring team in the league, all built without a first- or second-round pick. Week 2 did not go as well. I came back down to earth with only 106 points. Kevin got back on track with 161 scored in a win over Pete. Brett fell at the hands of Grimes, again failing to score 120. Joe suffered a two-point loss to Hoy, and Ryan won a nice matchup against Casey. 
This would mark my first loss in the Quaz division, something that would plague me throughout the regular season and did threaten to disrupt my abilities to make the playoffs come December. My non-QB players scored only one touchdown all week. Not a formula for winning. The bright spot this week was a new player acquisition that would turn out to be a huge ad. After week one, I took a leap of faith and made a bid of over 200 waiver bucks on Mike Williams. He had been a real talent coming out of college, was in a contract year, and Justin Herbert seemed to be the real deal at this point. Over the course of the first five weeks, Williams scored less than 15 points only once and over 26 points twice. He was a huge addition for a team looking to shore up its wide receiver core, which disappointed this week and was anchored by mostly mid-round picks. While Williams would eventually disappoint, he locked up a second wide receiver position for four important weeks as I built up wins against the weaker opponents of Assumption. Another decision I made was not to go all-in on Eli Mitchell, rookie running back with the San Francisco 49ers. Adam Scheffner had picked this player as his long shot week one, and shockingly, he came out of the gate and led the 49er backfield. At one point, I had a winning bid in, but reduced it over time as I was both concerned with Kyle Shanahan's time splint and confident in the five men already in my running back room. Mitchell would have been a nice piece and a very nice rookie to keep, but having this waiver money at the end of the year allowed me flexibility that was important to my performance in the playoffs. It was a blunder to let him fall to Ryan for sure, but one that would inevitably work out for me, as did my miss on Amari Cooper in the draft, as would many blunders I would make. Sometimes you have to get a little lucky on the road to a championship. Another blunder of mine was failing to secure Hollywood Brown off the waiver wire after week two. He had posted two rock-solid games, and I wanted him to round out my wide receiving core, as I was now wondering if Antonio Brown and Corey Davis were only week one flukes. I put in a bit of 80, thinking it would be the right amount, and wanting to protect the waiver cash lead I held on the rest of the league, thanks to Kevin's $350 payout for the Trey Sermon pick, who was now firmly planted behind Eli Mitchell on the 49ers depth chart. Brown would have a stellar first half, joining Mike Williams in our league's top 10 receivers by week 6. Gabe spent big and got him for close to 200. Brown would have been a very nice addition and one that certainly may have mitigated some of the damage of the middle of the season that was looming around the corner, but again, this blunder seemed to work in my favor. Having Brown on the roster may have caused me to start him in his week back half of the season, as I would do with Mike Williams in the middle of the year. The back end of the season was dismal for Hollywood, and having him in the lineup for those games may have limited my success down the stretch. More importantly, having Brown may have created a false sense of security as we approached playoffs and kept me from making an acquisition off the waiver wire that would ultimately lock up my wide receiver two spot with a top 10 producer at the position in the stretch run in playoffs. The next three weeks were perhaps the strongest stretches in our league's history. I posted scores of 164, 142, and 203 the top score in the league this year as I brushed the competition of Casey, Grimes, and Hoyt to the side. Everything seemed to be falling into place. Devontae Adams was common and alive, as was Josh Allen. Austin Eckler was emerging as a steal for a third-rounder preseason. Damian Harris and Michael Carter were looking like guys I could play in good matchups, and Cam Hayward was a nice addition at the DL spot and would go on to lead the league in defensive line scoring. Antonio Brown also looked like I stole a top 15 guy in the 8th round, as was my hope going into the year. More importantly, I was now in a position where I would only need to win 4 of the next 9 games to secure an 8-6 record, a record that should almost certainly make the playoffs. I felt as good as I could rolling over my longtime Summerfield Bowl rival in Week 5, 203-146. to 
It felt even better that he put up a good score, and I still curb-stomped him by 60 points in that matchup. It was as if I could already taste Colonel Taylor's finest touching my lips. The skies were darkening, though, and there were signs of tough times to come. David Montgomery went down with an injury that at the time looked season-ending. Darren Waller had yet to return on his high draft capital that I invested in him. While I had gotten good production out of my defensive back spot, it lacked consistency in scoring. Antonio Gibson also had been dealing with a shin injury and was having his workload limited by it. Most ominously, though, Week 7 hovered over my head. I have never been one to let bye weeks dictate my draft. Things change a lot over the course of a season, and I just do not see the logic in planning on bye weeks in the middle of the year when your roster is likely to change drastically. This would hurt me greatly. In week five, I was making moves already in preparation. I grabbed Ryan Tannehill early to fill in for Allen, and I was marketing Chase Claypool for trades off his 19-point performance. I received exactly zero interest in Claypool. I genuinely believe I reached out to nearly every Lug owner trying to move Claypool for someone useful in week seven, and no one abided. And all seven players on my team were on bye week week seven, including my entire defense and three offensive starters. This was clearly going to be a problem. Still, these omens were an afterthought coming off the absolute smackdown defeat I dealt Hoy week 5, 203 to 146. As I confidently strutted down the road I was on following Hoy's ignominious 203 to 146 defeat, things looked beautiful. Birds were flying overhead and singing wonderfully melodious tunes. The sun was shining bright. The men on that road I passed stopped, shook my hand, and patted me on the back. The women I met affectionately giggled often blushed, and politely laid their panties at my feet. I whistled a tune to myself, something that would play over the credits of a Rocky movie as I smiled and waved to the crowds as if I was a politician passing through a friendly town in a parade. I was ecstatic about my success and hilariously unaware of what lay ahead. Had I only looked up from the deluge of points I had scored, I would have seen dark skies and uncertainty. The road to a championship. It was about to get much rougher. <laughs>